Let's take our Bibles and turn together to the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 6, reading together verses 8 through 23. This is one of my favorite stories in really the whole Bible, but particularly in uh, the narratives surrounding Elijah and Elisha. If you've never read it before, you're in for a treat. And if you have read it, if you know this story, I pray that it would minister to your soul uh, even this morning as it has in the past. Hear God's word, 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Now, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servant, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master." So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. O oh Lord our God, would you open our eyes? 
that we might see and behold wonderful things, glorious things, truth and life, grace in your word. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us. We ask that the meditations of all of our hearts, the words of my lips, would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ the Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. We recently rewatched The Wizard of Oz because we realized that our youngest had never seen it before. It had been a while since we had seen it ourselves. Uh, and I remembered that one of my favorite scenes in that movie comes at the end. Uh, Dorothy, the scarecrow, the tin man, the lion uh, have melted the wicked witch of the West. They've taken her broomstick and now they have returned back to the great and the powerful Wizard of Oz. But he tells them they have to come back again tomorrow and then he'll keep his promise. Right, to give the scarecrow a brain and the tin man a heart and the lion courage and to send Dorothy back to Kansas. Well, they object vigorously, you remember. Right? And as they're going back and forth with the wizard and as he's yelling at them to leave them and to, to not treat him in this way, little Toto, you remember, runs over to this curtain and he pulls the curtain back. Right? And what do we see? But that the emperor has no clothes. Right, The great and powerful wizard of Oz is just a little man manipulating wheels and dials and speaking into a microphone. He is nothing to fear at all. And in that scene, you have one of the great lines, perhaps in movie history, that has so many applications in life. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, right? Now, I think of that scene in The Wizard of Oz whenever I read this story in 2 Kings. For here, too, the curtain is being pulled back, and we are getting a glimpse of reality. Yet in this case, the Lord wants us to pay full attention to what is behind the curtain. For what is behind the curtain is the Lord himself and his heavenly army. And he's pulling back the curtain so that we will not be afraid. No, not, not being afraid of, of God and of his heavenly army, no, but, but not being afraid of the circumstances, the situations in which we so often find ourselves. Now, I said that this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and part of the reason is because I can identify so easily with that servant's response there in verse 15. He goes out early in the morning just to do his normal morning routine, and he sees what he least expects, what he least desires. He sees a Syrian army, horses and chariots circling the city. His heart is filled with fear, filled with confusion. Alas, he cries out to Elisha, alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, certainly the first readers of the book of Kings would have experienced a similar fear and confusion when they had been taken into exile from Israel into Babylon in the sixth century BC. I imagine that you yourself, at some point in your life, or even perhaps today, your heart has been filled with fear, with trembling, with confusion. You have been shaken to the core. You've been uncertain of what to do, unsure of what the future holds, scared that everything you have held dear is crumbling or about to crumble down before you. 
Well, the author of Kings is like little Toto, right? He is here to pull back the curtain so that we will see what is unseen. And this morning, I want us to see three things that we so often fail to see in fearful times. First, I want you to see who God is. Second, I want you to see the unseen spiritual realities. And third, I want you to see the power of kindness, the power of kindness. Let's look at these three things this morning. First, see who God is. Now, we don't know exactly when this story takes place during Elisha's ministry, in part because the king of Syria and the king of Israel are unnamed in the story. But it's likely that we're still dealing with the conflict between Syria and Israel during the reigns of Jehoram and Ben-Hadad. And during this stage of the conflict, we see that, that Syria is invading Israel. Right, making these raids to kill, to kidnap, to ravage the land. You remember back in chapter 5 how they had gone in and kidnapped a little girl from Israel. The text tells us that the king in Syria would, would make his battle plans. He would map out where his campsites were going to be. But every time he did so and tried to get to that place and gain the, the, the surprise and the advantage, the king of Israel would already be there. He would already be guarding and defending that place. So eventually the king of Syria is livid because it happened too many times to just be a coincidence. Clearly there is a spy, there is a mole, there is a traitor in his midst amongst his staff. And so he calls all the staff together. He locks the doors as it were. And he says, so who is it? Which one of you is the spy? Which one of you is on the side of the king of Israel? Now it's not clear how he knows, right? But, But one of the servants had discovered the truth. Right, Connor Stallions, University of Michigan football, has nothing on Elisha, right? He has the signs of the king of Syria. He knows all of them. He's a one-man CIA, and he is telling the king of Israel all that the king of Syria is speaking there in his war room so that they can be on guard against their attacks. And you see how the Syrian servant puts it there in verse 12. Elisha tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Now, of course, as God's prophet, Elisha only had this knowledge because God had given it to him. And what God gave to Elisha in part is what God has in fullness in himself. Elisha's abilities, Elisha's actions point us to the God whom Elisha served, the God for whom Elisha spoke. Elisha here is teaching us that he serves, that we serve a great God who knows all things, who is all-powerful, a God who knows all things and who is able to protect his people in every situation. He is omniscient and he is omnipotent, all-knowing, and all powerful. Let's think about these things together. First, he's omniscient. As our children learn in the children's catechism, nothing can be hidden from God. There's no place, no room, no device, no app that is not bugged, as it were. There's nothing that's, that's so encrypted that, that, that God cannot know it completely. He has, so to speak, listening devices, hidden cameras everywhere. There is no privacy with God, right? As 2 Chronicles verse 9 of chapter 16 says, God's eyes run to and fro throughout the earth. He sees all things. He hears all things. He knows all things at all times, everywhere. 
Psalm 139, verse 4, even before there is a word on our tongue, the Lord knows it all. Hebrews 4, verse 13, that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God is omniscient. He knows all things. Now, this omniscience of God can be a very disconcerting reality as it was for the king of Syria if we are seeking to disobey the Lord, seeking to harm his people. But for God's people who are in fearful circumstances, don't you see that this truth is incredible news? It is the truth that enables us to put to death all of our fears. God knows all things. Nothing ever catches God off guard. Nothing ever surprises him. No one can get away with anything without him knowing it, even before it happens. And whenever God wants to, he can use his knowledge to prevent harm from coming to his people. For the omniscient God is also the omnipotent God. He is the God who can and who does do all of his holy will. He is the God for whom nothing is too difficult, as Jeremiah 32 says. He is the refuge, the fortress of his people, the God who covers us with his wings. Psalm 125, verse two, puts it like this. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Romans chapter eight, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? We are the apple of his eye and no one can touch us. No one can hurt us unless God permits it and allows it to happen. And of course, God doesn't merely permit and allow things to happen in his universe. He is the God who has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. He is the God, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now let's be sure, even in the old covenants, right? God didn't normally communicate the future to his people ahead of time in, in the detail that he does here, even in this story. Much less does he do it now that apostles and, and prophets are no more under the new covenant. But even when we do not know what dangers await us tomorrow, even when God permits us to suffer harm in this life, we can be confident, confident that it is only because he, the all-knowing and all-powerful God, has a purpose, has a plan that is wiser than what we can see here in the moment. When trials come upon us, we must see. We must remember who God is. We must remember his omniscience. We must remember his omnipotence. It's only then that our hearts can be still, can be at rest, no matter what rages against us. This story makes me think about what General Thomas Stonewall Jackson, Presbyterian deacon, replied when he was asked, how can you be so calm during battle? And he said, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death, he said. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. Belief in the omniscience, the omnipotence of God, the sovereignty of God leads us not to fear. Elisha's knowledge of God was certainly a part of the reason why he was not afraid as he saw the Syrian army surrounding him. He saw who God was. He walked by faith and not 
by sight. Which brings us to the second thing I want you to see. The thing that we need to see when we are afraid, and it's this, we need to see the unseen spiritual realities. So once the king of Syria realizes what is going on, he sends a reconnaissance mission to find out where Elisha is living. He, he discovers that he's in the town of Dothan, about 10 miles north of Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. But instead of sending sort of a special forces team to take Elisha out or to capture him, take him hostage, he sends this huge army horses and chariots, troops. They come by night. They surround the city. You can tell, can't you, how uh, if, if they could come that easily and that close to the capital of Israel, things were not good for Israel during this, this time. Well, Elisha's servant, as we saw already, he comes out in the morning. He sees the army all around the city. He cries out in fear and in confusion. And listen to Elisha's answer, full of faith, full of calm. He says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, at this point in the story, I just want to imagine, right, that Elisha's servant is looking at Elisha like he has three heads, like, what are you talking about? Like, you have no clue. It's you and it's me, and it's like hundreds, maybe thousands of Syrian troops with swords and spears and horses and chariots. But then Elisha says, he prays, and he says to God, O Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, please open his eyes that he might see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, the servant had only seen one army, the human one, the animal one surrounding them. He didn't realize that there was another army surrounding the Syrian army, surrounding and protecting Elisha. It was an invisible army. It was a spiritual army, an army ready for battle if God gave them the word. And when Elisha prayed, God opened the servant's eyes so that he could see the unseen, that he could fear no more. I'm sure by this point in our culture, you have uh, experienced some form of augmented reality. Maybe you've played Pokemon Go. Maybe you've been shoe shopping or clothes shopping, right? Or uh, you, you've been glasses shopping online and, you, and you've, you've experienced what it's like, right? When you see a, an image sort of placed onto reality, right? And you can see what you look like in those shoes or in that dress or in those glasses, right? Well, what's happening here is like real augmented reality. It, it's, it's real reality. The, the servant is not just seeing something that's fake, sort of overlaid onto what is real. He is seeing what is actually and really there all the time. What's invisible to the naked eye. He is seeing the heavenly host. Now that, that word host, singular or plural, it's not used here in this story, but it's, it is used throughout the Bible, it's used throughout the Elijah and Elisha of narratives to refer to God's angelic army. I fear that when we read this word in the Bible, we just sort of read right over it. We're so used to hearing it, right? We're so familiar with it. All the heavenly hosts, the Lord of hosts. But, but do we not realize what we are saying? The heavenly hosts is the heavenly armies. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts is, is Yahweh of armies. Now, again, we know it, don't we? Luke chapter two, and then suddenly there was filled, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host filling the sky and singing 
Or we say in the doxology, praise him above ye heavenly host. And we even sing, don't we, in uh, a mighty fortress is our God, Lord Sabaoth, his name. And you might have thought, you know, S-A-B-A-O-T-H, Lord Sabaoth, maybe that's re referring to the Sabbath somehow. No, no, it's a, a, a literal transliteration of the Hebrew word for host, Sabaoth. It's put into English letters, Lord of hosts, his name, Lord Sabaoth, Lord of armies. His name. God is the God of armies. He is the God who has spiritual forces always present on behalf of his people. And here the servant is enabled to, to see the protecting strength of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, heavenly army. He was able to see that those who were on his and Elisha's side were indeed more than those who were on the Syrian side so that he might be able to put his fears to death. Now, now you might read the story and, and think, well, if I could see right, with my own two eyes what he saw, right? if I could see with my own two eyes all these unseen realities like he did, then I wouldn't be afraid either. But of course, right, physically seeing the unseen realities was rare even in the Bible, wasn't it? Only a relatively small number of, of the characters in the scriptures actually see angels on earth and know that they're angels. All right, the rest of us are called to see the unseen realities by faith and not by sight. We're called to, to walk by faith. And what does it mean to walk by faith? As Hebrews 11 verse 1 puts it, it means to walk with a conviction of things not seen. God wants us to see the unseen spiritual realities with the eyes of faith. So, so what are those unseen spiritual realities which we need to see that we might not be afraid? Let me give you just three of them. The first is what we see even here. We need to see that angels are real and active. If you this morning only believe in the things that are visible, the things that are measurable, the things that can be weighed, then you are an empiricist you are a materialist. You are not a Christian. Right? Christians believe in unseen things. We believe that Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 is true. God commands his angels concerning us to guard us in all of our ways. On their hands, they will bear you up, David says, lest you strike your foot against a stone. We believe that Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 is true. Are not angels all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? We believe in angels. We also believe in demons. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places, how easy it is, particularly when we live in fearful times, how easy it is to underestimate the reality of this hidden spiritual battle. We must believe that 2 Kings 6 verse 16 is true for us as well as it was true for Elisha. Those who are with us are always more than those who are with the ones who oppose us. We need not fear. But there's a second unseen spiritual reality that we must see, and it is the, the unseen realities of our present salvation. Now, of course, this begins 
by seeing, as we prayed for little John Robert, it begins by seeing that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Seeing how we have sinned and continue to sin against God and against other people. But our spiritual sight must always be praying Elisha's prayer, must always be praying to see not only our own sin, but all of the spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul says it that way in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And, and what are those unseen spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Well, he lists a bunch of them there in Ephesians 1. The fact that God has elected us and chosen us before the foundation of the world. The fact that God has predestined us to adoption as sons to himself. The fact that we've been forgiven and redeemed and cleansed in Jesus Christ by his blood. That we have been justified, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The fact of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, Jesus will say. The fact of our resurrection with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 2. And we've been seated with him in the heavenly places. We are reigning with him. We could go on and on. These are the unseen realities that must be seen with the eyes of faith, must be believed and believed anew day after day after day. These are the things that are even more true than what you see with your eyes, particularly in our day and age of sort of deep fake videos, right? Where you look at a video and you're like, is that true or is that fake? I don't know. But you can know that what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, is real, is true, will never change. So we need to see that, that angels are real and active. We need to see these unseen realities of our present salvation. But, but thirdly and lastly, we need to see the hope of eternal glory. Paul puts it so beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. We look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are temporary, they're transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. And how does that passage begin? Do you remember? It begins with these words. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Because these things are true, because these unseen realities Eternal realities are true. This hope of glory that is ours because Jesus Christ is ours forevermore as we've just sung. Then fear is gone. Hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. We see these unseen realities both after death and after Jesus returns when he gives us a new body and we exist with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. We are of good courage. We fear not, for we see what is unseen. Do you see it this morning? Do you know that these things are true? Do, do they remain in your consciousness as you move throughout your days? When your heart is filled with fear, do you remember the angels? Do you remember all that God has done for you, all that you are in Jesus Christ? Do you remember what your condition will be in a state of glory? If Elisha were here this morning, 
And he would say to us what he said to his servant, fear not, fear not, the Lord is with you. Alas, thirdly, we've seen who God is. We've seen the unseen spiritual realities. The last thing the king of Israel wants us to see, or the, the, the author of the book of Kings wants us to see, is the power of kindness. And after Elisha prays that, that God would enable his servant to see the unseen, you notice in verse 18 that the Syrian army comes down against him. The heavenly hosts don't actually intervene. They don't need to intervene because Elisha prays that God would strike this people with blindness. Now, the word used here for blindness is not the ordinary word. It's, it's a rare word. It's only used twice in the whole of the Bible. And so most commentators understand this blindness not to, to be literal absence of sight, right, but a visual, a mental confusion, a befuddlement, especially since, as we see in verse 19, the whole army is going to accept Elisha's word and follow him the 10-mile journey to Samaria, right? So it wasn't that they, that they didn't know that they, you know, weren't, or, or that they weren't in Dothan. Didn't, they couldn't, you know, walk and, and, and see anything. Rather, they were visually confused. They were, they were muddled in their brains. And so they believe Elisha's word. You see it there in verse 19. This is not the way. This is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. Now, you really can't read that without remembering Star Wars. Obi-Wan Kenobi Right? When Luke gets pulled over and he says, what? You don't need to detain this boy. You don't need to see his identification. These are not the droids you're looking for. Right? That's what's going on here. There's sort of a, a, a befuddlement, a, a mysterious, like, wait, you're right. Wait, what's going on here? Except in Elisha's case, he's not lying. Because what's he going to do? He is going to bring them to the man whom they want to see, i.e. him, just not in Dothan. He's going to bring them into the capital city of Israel. And so when they come to Samaria, Elisha prays again. He asks God to open their eyes so that they can see clearly. Behold, the text tells us, they're in the midst of Samaria. Here they are surrounded by the king of Israel, the army of Israel. He's excited, isn't he? He, he wants to, to kill them all. He asks it twice. But Elisha says, of course not. Of course not. Would you treat normal prisoners of war that way? Would you kill them? No. If they were killed, they wouldn't be able to learn what God intends them to learn through all this. They wouldn't be able to bring back to their king what the miracle was intended to teach them. And so he tells the king to give them food, to give them drink, so that they might realize that the God they are fighting against, Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of armies, is not just a great God, but he's a good God. He's a kind God. And so the king of Israel throws a great feast for them. And then he sends them away to his master. The kindness of God in sparing their lives and feeding them is part of the reason why they stop coming on raids into the land of Israel. You see it there in verse 23, right? He sends them away, they go to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on the raids into the land of Israel. Now, at least temporarily, because in verse 24, it says that Ben-Hadad is going to muster his army all over again after these things. But, but, but you see the point. How easy it is, particularly in fearful times, when, when human opponents are coming against us, against the Lord, against his word, how easy it is to fall into the trap that the king of Israel had fallen into 
to want to treat the Syrians the way they're treating us, to want to repay evil for evil, to want to do to them as they would do to us. And yet God's word is clear. Proverbs 24, verse 29, do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. Proverbs 25, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heat burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And Paul quotes that passage from Proverbs 25 and Romans 12 when he calls us to not take our own revenge, but to leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is the Lord's, and he will repay in due time. We're not to over be overcome by evil, but we are to overcome evil with good. We are to serve even our enemies, heaping burning coals on their head. Now, that's a, a difficult image to understand, but it most likely refers to, to making our enemies overcome with shame, right? right? Either a shame that, that leads to a greater guilt, a greater sense of guilt, or even a shame that would lead them to repentance, turning to the Lord, the Lord whose kindness we are showing them as we do them good. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 2, verse 4? It is the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience that leads the elect to repentance. So in whatever trial you might find yourself now, God is calling you to fear not, but he's also calling you to love your enemies. He's calling you to pray for those who persecute you because you know that he sees your suffering. He knows your heartaches. He is stronger than all of your foes, whether physical or spiritual. He's a great God and he is a good and a kind God. And where has he shown us his kindness most supremely, most clearly, but in sending his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to bear his wrath on behalf of all who would see their sins, and acknowledge their need of a savior and put their trust in him. This story points us to our savior, does it not? As Jesus was surrounded by Roman soldiers, by the Jewish religious leaders, what does he say in the garden? He says, I could call down 12 legions of angels. A legion, a Roman legion was about 6,000 troops. So he's, you know, do the math, 72,000 angels could come down right now. And don't you think that they could rescue me from the hands of the Romans and the Jews? But Jesus didn't do it. Jesus didn't pray that his captors would be made blind and he would pass through their midst. Jesus let them capture him. He let them crucify him. He willingly let himself be swallowed by the serpent, as it were so that he could explode through the serpent, conquering Satan, rendering powerless him who had the power of death. Why? So that he could draw his enemies to himself by love, by kindness. How do we ultimately put fear to death? But by remembering the death of Jesus for us who once were his enemies, but who now by grace through faith in him are his friends who have a seat at his table. He has thrown a great feast for us. Again, Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, 
but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Brothers and sisters, that is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that leads us not to fear any created thing. Let us pray that God would enable us, would open our eyes to see who he is, to see these unseen spiritual realities and to see the power of kindness, even in leading those who hate him, who hate us to himself. And let us not just pray that for ourselves, but as Elisha did, let us pray that others would have grace from God to see what is unseen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you a needy people. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who causes the blind to see. Lord, even we who have had our eyes opened, Lord, we struggle to see clearly. We believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, would you be pleased, would you be gracious to us, to our children, to our parents, to our families, to our friends, our coworkers. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see who you are, to see the unseen realities that are true all the time around us. Help us, O oh Lord, to see the power of kindness, how you have brought us to yourself through your loving kindness in Christ Jesus and how you call us now to go forth fearlessly, courageously, boldly into the world, bringing the gospel of grace to those who hate you. Oh Lord, would you be glorified this day? Would you stir, calm our hearts, Lord, so that we might be still and know that you are God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.